VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Thursday, March 28th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Now, anyone who's been following science or the news knows that we are entering a time of potentially unprecedented change, both in terms of our environment and in terms of our culture, as the digital revolution brings us leaps and bounds into the future. So what is that future going to look like? One key is to look, of course, at the past. And a number of influential thinkers over the past few decades have suggested that our history is shaped by what's called geographic determinism. That is, The geographic nature of where a society or a civilization has evolved influences how successful that particular group of people might be. But what if there's another way to look at the same facts and understand something deeper about what it means to be human? That's where Jeremy Lent comes in. Lent suggests that, in fact, we should be thinking about the worldview of a given civilization, that is, the implicit beliefs and values that drive meaning in people's lives. In Lent's opinion, this has been a significant driver of the historical path that each civilization has taken. And in order to understand the directions in which these civilizations went and where we might be going today, we actually have to take a deeper look into our own cognitive history. He outlines this idea in his book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And I had the pleasure of a conversation with Jeremy on exactly this topic, trying to suss out what his view of history might mean for how we interpret the effects of climate change to come. Jeremy Lent, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you. It's just great to be on the show with you, Andre. So I want to start a little bit with um, having you walk us through what you mean by a cognitive history, uh, as opposed to the traditional historical viewpoint that most of us are familiar with. Yeah, sure. Well, a cognitive history really takes the viewpoint that history is not just a matter of um, things happening based on uh, objective, say, environmental factors or who is stronger or who developed um, this or that technology, all that kind of stuff. But it actually looks at this notion that the ways in which cultures make sense of the world affect their values, their their value system, and affect what they actually do with history. So really the, the upshot is that and the values of different cultures actually has a significant shaping factor in the way history has unfolded. 
And by that, do you mean the way history has been recorded or actually what has happened as a result of that worldview? Right, and that's a great question, and really both. But the particular thing that I'm talking about here, and the, the way which is a little bit surprising uh, based on the conventional mainstream view of history, is that latter one, that actually the stuff that's actually happened has been affected by the different ways in which cultures have made sense of the universe and how that's affected their values and what they believe one should do. So, I mean, it's hard enough to get historical facts from, you know, whatever records that you're using. How do you get a sense of what the cognitive worldview is of a particular culture if, you know, if, if, a, if that culture is, is far back in the past? Yes, well, a lot of it has to do with a combination of reading original sources, um, as, at least as far back as we can go where there's a written record. So, for example, in China, we can go back to pretty much uh, 2,500 years or so ago to get a pretty good sense of how uh, at least the, the people who are able to write made sense of things. Um, and similarly, obviously, we can go back to the ancient Greeks. Um, and, to, and then if we go pre-before written language, well, there we rely a lot, of course, on the work of anthropologists. And there's actually a field of cognitive anthropology that's developed in the last few decades, where people use anthropological techniques to really try to get a deeper sense of how earlier um, pre-literate cultures made sense of the universe, all the way to the earliest hunter-gatherers. So can you tell us a little bit about um, some examples from, so, you know, you can choose whatever era you right. feel is, is best to kind of give us a sense of, of how a cognitive history, you know, what, what is the cognitive history yeah. of a particular culture? Sure, yeah, how it unfolds. Um, well, in a sense, um, what I like to, in fact, the book has a quite a big focus on traditional Chinese thought, which is relatively obscure to most Western minds, and even world histories tend to sort of marginalize China. But in fact, it's been uh, probably, perhaps in some ways, the most significant civilization in all of history, and certainly one of the two, along with the current mainstream modern Western-based civilization. And what's so interesting there is you, you see the, the ways in which the earliest Chinese, all through to almost pre-modern times, made sense of the universe, was in a very different way from what we are used to in the West. And some of the fundamental differences, for example, is that we in the West have tended to inherit what's called a dualistic mindset, where we get a sense that there's a split between mind and body, or a split between humans and the rest of nature, or even a split between two different dimensions of the cosmos. So from Plato, we have the sense that there's this fixed eternal heavens up, up there, um, where nothing changes in this, this kind of polluted world where everything's always changing down below. And that led to a lot of the ways in which Christianity developed, etc. In traditional China, that whole concept never even appeared. So there was much more of a sense of everything being connected. And, and they had this root metaphor uh, that I call um, really uh, the a harmonic web of life for how everything is connected, with the sense that one little change here and affects uh, through ripples everything else in the universe in one way or another. And, you know, that sounds, well, how, how is that going to actually affect how history takes place? But there's some really iconic moments where we actually see history unfolding as a basis of these different kind of worldviews. Yeah, so actually in your book you, you uh, talk about the work of Edward Lorenz, 
um, you know, on, on the Western side who kind of discovered some of this ripple effect by, you know, well, why don't you tell us? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, he was, he was one of the first of the modern um, scientific wave to really start to come up with a way of making sense of the universe that actually was more connected with the traditional Chinese thought than the mainstream Western way of looking at things. So, you know, ever since Newton, really, in Western scientific thought, there was this sense of a reductionist universe in the sense that everything was determined and it, we just need to get the information. We could understand exactly what's going to happen. Um, and really, a lot of the discoveries that were made uh, led that to this sense. That so when Einstein could you know, um, understand how to make sense of the of sort of subnuclear particles, all of a sudden we could get the power of the atomic bomb and predict exactly what was going to happen with that. And so Lorenz was actually working on um, taking the most advanced computers of the time in the uh, I think the late sixties. And, and 70s, and he was saying, with all this advanced computing power, I should be able to detect how weather's going to be. So rather than just forecasting a couple of days in advance, well, we should be able to forecast, you know, six months, a year in advance, exactly what's going to happen. And what he discovered is the tiniest little change in an assumption, like going from three decimal points to six decimal points, whatever, led to a completely different outcome in his predictions, just in the weather a few days later. So he. Like, it's kind of really the hallmark of a great scientist to discover some little bug and rather than just ignoring it, to go deep into it. And that's what he did. And he was the one who uh, first came up with this question that's since become known as the butterfly effect. And it was a question more than a statement. He was, he, the question was, could it be that the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil could lead to a tornado in Texas? And with the idea being that you can have very small effects which can sometimes become amplified and if we think of it, again of this web of life analogy, just like in, if you imagine all of these connectors of the weather system as being this complex web, that one little effect here can amplify all the way through the system to cause a completely unexpected um, output at some time later. I mean, I can understand how this makes, I mean, it makes me as a scientist uncomfortable, right? This idea that, in fact, the things that we're working so hard to, to, to predict, the regularities in the environment, can so quickly be perturbed by something so small. Right. Uh, so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about sort of this push and pull between the kind of the view that, that um, a, a lot of us scientists have, that the work that we're doing is going to lead to some kinds of general principles, and this systems way of thinking, which you know, presumably um, accepts the fact that there is a, some uncertainty that will remain in the system, right. and yet we can still gain some understanding of it. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And, and I think you touch on a really important point that um, it, when you have uh, gone through the whole education process of becoming a scientist and feeling the power of this kind of knowledge approach to the world, it can be really undermining to say, oh, wait a minute, you're telling me that this doesn't work exactly like one? And that may be one reason why this paradigm shift that I see potentially taking place has taken so long to unfold. People are very resistant to these ideas, even really against the sort of scientific method itself, which says that when faced with uh, new data, you need to go back and check your assumptions. And, and yet a, lo a lot of very um, sort of hardcore fundamentalist reductionist scientists just don't want to do that. Um, and I think that a lot of this has to do with the fact that the 
what, what um, system science offers is not so much fixed laws, but principles. So it's not just like systems thinking in general says, oh, we can't make sense of anything. But what we find, and what's so fascinating with a lot of systems thinking, and we see this in systems biology, complexity science, network theory, a lot of different approaches to what I call the sciences of connection, is that the same principles can apply in one field as in completely different fields. Um, and you know, one of those principles, for example, is like um, uh, fractality, of how uh, a lot of self-organized systems are, um, actually show the same patterns at different levels of scale. So you have what, these kind of scale-free um, network effects. And you see that in anything from schools of fish to ripples on sand dunes to like almost any, in fact, to the way uh, neurons work in the brain. So it, it leads you to this kind of somewhat awe-inspiring sense that are there these kind of principles of how the universe connects up, which are not fixed laws, though. You can't use those principles to say, if I knew every single bit of data, I'd know exactly what was going to happen. But the principles themselves can then be applied to new contexts. I can see how then in, um, in a civilization that emerged out of this dualist viewpoint um, and was influenced with, by, you know, by belief in uh, a single God, for example, like in Christianity and, 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 and just monotheist religions, that you can, you can sort of uh, imagine then that there is um, a creep in of this idea that therefore it was designed, right? If there yes. are already, and yet if you come from an Eastern civilization where perhaps the mm. idea of one God was not something that took hold in the worldview, you can actually have a different interpretation of the same idea. Right. Yes, I think that is very true. And, and one of the things that I found most fascinating as I was doing the research for this book, The Patterning Instinct, um, is something that you were just describing, that and we often think in modern times of science and religion as being utterly opposed and separate from each other. But what I began to realize uh, as we looked at how cognitive history unfolds is that this belief in a God in the heavens who is omniscient and omnipotent and sets everything and on in the earth happening. And it leads to this kind of split, like the earth is the sort of um, where the drama takes place and somewhere up there is God who directs everything. And that led to this way of thinking that if we can understand the laws that God applies to the world, then we could really touch into the mind of God. So a lot of the, the luminaries of the scientific revolution, whatever, um, Newton, Descartes, um, Kepler, Galileo, almost every one of them, what inspired them is the sense that by using logic, they could actually understand the mind of God. And that came from Christian, what I call Christian rationalism, this thinking that God made the world according to a set of laws that, and he gave reason to man. Of course, there were no women in this equation at all, it was, but he gave reason to man to uh, understand this world that he gave. And so to use reason to figure out the rules of science was actually to do God's work. And that was what, what really inspired them so much. And then as science developed further, the, it sort of got a little bit uh, into its own, a sense of its own magnificence. And so then you could just cut God out of the equation entirely, but you still had the same deterministic world according to a set of laws, just without the God part. But really, that science would never have developed 
if it weren't for Christianity in the first place, offering this kind of inspiring way of thinking. Well, and then, of course, there's the idea of um, Adam ate the forbidden fruit, right? right? Which in some ways, in some people's view, is this knowledge, right? It's like yes. trying to understand God is eating the forbidden fruit. Um, so so there, I can see why there's this push and pull between rationality and the pursuit of knowledge and some interpretations of the tenets of Christianity. Um, but what about in the Eastern civilizations then, where this was not necessarily a driving force? I mean, you know, do we see um, a, a kind of pursuit of knowledge in a, in a I, I guess, in a, in a, maybe in a different framework? It's yes. even hard for me as a yeah. Western-trained scientist to imagine well, what that sure. is. And, um, and yeah, the surprising answer, the surprising for people trained in Western thought is yes. Um, and um, there was a, a, just an amazing scholar in the 20th century called Joseph Needham, who was actually a biologist who then became totally fascinated by Chinese, learned Chinese, went to China, and he ended up uh, writing, um, he wrote something like 12 volumes of, what he, uh, of this history of science and technology in China, and then he started this whole, it was almost like a sub-discipline. There are now dozens of volumes written on the same topic. And what he showed through this really deep research was that actually there was a very, very advanced um, Chinese approach to science and technology in areas as diverse as mathematics, cartography, geology. Um, you can pretty much name it. And um, they, if you look at, for example, uh, as late as the, say, 15th or 16th century, you'll see that the Chinese um, scientific and technological way of understanding the world was as, as, as advanced and some places more advanced than Western ideas. Their approach, though, was different. And this is what's so fascinating. They tended to approach things based on relationships rather than looking at the things themselves. So, for example, when there is a, um, a scientific phenomenon that's based more on relationships, such as the tides, um, which has to do with the relationship of the moon and gravity and, 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 and the Earth's uh, uh, yeah, the Earth's mass, etc. They actually had developed a theory of tides in relation to the moon way before that got developed in the West because of this, uh, uh, this kind of recognition of looking at things not as having intrinsic properties, but how they relate to everything else. Um, but it didn't lead to the scientific revolution. And part of my own, I, I spent, I actually had a chapter in the book looking at why didn't the scientific revolution mm -hmm. happen in China or for that matter in the world of is Islamic civilization, which was equally advanced at that time. And ultimately I do think there was something about that dualistic way of thinking in the West, that way of looking at things objectively and coming up with this, with mathematics as this kind of transcultural way of understanding things that led to a different mindset that did allow the scientific revolution to, to take off in the West. But it was also because it led to a sense of conquest over nature. And this is what's so fascinating, that um, the, the Chinese, for example, um, didn't look at the use of knowledge um, and the use of technology to conquer nature. The very notion of conquering nature would have been just nonsensical to them, because they looked at how you harmonize with nature. So they were very much interested in how you used understanding to um, harmonize with the forces of nature. Whereas the West got fascinated by this idea of we're separate from nature, we can conquer nature. And so you have people like Francis Bacon, these prophets of conquering nature. He'd talk about putting nature on the rack and torturing her secrets out of her. 
um, which inspired many of the thinkers of the, in the 17th and 18th century. And, and nature is getting her revenge. Well, <laughs> yes, it's a, I, I know. It's a, that I do think, and, and this is where I go in the book to the final chapters, that um, that worldview uh, has led to some of these inc- extreme imbalances that are causing so much uh, dis- destruction of nature right now and potential, potentially destruction of our own civilization. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that even though I go to, to this place in a lot of depth in my book, sometimes people have looked at what I'm writing about and gotten the sense that somehow I'm trying to say, oh, this East Asian like view of harmonizing with the world is better than our Western view and we are, there's something fundamentally wrong or evil about uh, so dualistic splits in our way of thinking. And I don't see it that way at all. I see both of these different worldviews is having a tremendous amount to offer and humanity overall and, and wisdom and, our, uh, and really the flourishing of human life on Earth. But this Western way has led to these extreme imbalances. And one of the things I'm inviting in my book and in my writings in general is for our Western mindset to be open to another way of looking at the world, which now it turns out is being validated by modern systems thinking. Not to say the reductionism is wrong, or um, has some uh, uh, negative like malevolence to it or anything like that, but to realize that by integrating those two different ways of thinking, it can be uncomfortable. We have to go outside of that comfort zone of we want to be in control of everything. But by integrating that, we have the possibility to actually come to a more integrated way of living with nature uh, for humanity in the future. We all want to be able to practice mindfulness every day. But sometimes it can be hard when we're overwhelmed with work and other aspects of life. Well, there's an app called Blinkist that can help. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because in just 15 minutes, I can tell whether the book that I'm currently considering is really worth the investment of time that will take. One book I'm considering is Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. And of course, it's got a Blinkist version. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com minds to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash minds. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. 
Inquiring Minds is supported by Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a weekly podcast that explores why everything you learned in Econ 101 was wrong, and why, if we don't get economics right, the pitchforks are coming. Every week on Pitchfork Economics, zillionaire investor Nick Hanauer is joined by some of the world's most original economic thinkers in a convention-busting exploration of who gets what and why in the American economy. Pitchfork Economics explains why a $15 minimum wage is actually good for business, why taxing the rich spurs economic growth, and why a thriving middle class is the primary cause of prosperity. Senator Cory Booker explains why curbing corporate greed would actually be good for corporations and the economy. Historian Yuval Harari explains how those in power use storytelling to shrink your paycheck. And economist Stephanie Kelton scolds Democrats for worrying too much about how we're going to pay for things and not enough about what we need to do. If you want to learn how to make the economy work for all Americans, and not just the wealthy few, subscribe to Pitchfork Economics at pitchforkeconomics.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So I do want to get to sort of some of the later chapters in your book and, and how it relates to the kind of things that we're facing down the pike in the next 50 to 100 years. But before we get there, I kind of want to put my skeptical hat on for a minute and just talk a little bit about, so this view of harmonizing with nature has obviously influenced uh, aspects of, that, of, of Chinese thought and um, medicine in particular that we in the West might be familiar with. So there are some um, practices in Chinese medicine that are based on energy flow, for example, and um, this concept of interconnectedness between different parts of the body and how energy is flowing through them and balancing these different mm -hmm. forces. Um, and these have led to some pseudoscientific um, you know, claims and also uh, you know, it, it can be very uh, um, attractive for a person who's in pain or suffering right. from whatever it is to search for an answer outside of Western medicine if Western right. medicine has not helped. Yes. And to turn to the ancient quality of Chinese medicine and the very nature of its being ancient, suggesting that it's better or, or mm -hmm. you know. And, and so I kind of want to just get your perspective on this idea of, you know, Chinese medicine, you know, how we should approach it, um, f given that we, we are in this dualist worldview, and how someone like me, who's pretty skeptical of um, claims of medicine that are either not based in mechanistic explanations right. that I can understand, or, um, you know, that we have had ob objective measures showing the efficacy of, you know, right, the double-blind, sure. placebo-controlled trials, for example. Right. So I just want to get your no, perspective on that. Absolutely. And, and I, I share your um, concern about like this kind of pseudo-scientific claims and, and quackery and um, it's almost like an orientalism, like, oh, if mm -hmm. it comes from some traditional mode, it must be better. All that stuff, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Um, and at the same time, again, we need to, we need to be aware that this, the very success of the reductionist project, if you will, has led um, to the arrogance, if you will, the hubris of thinking that because we've been able to explain so much, we can explain everything. Um, and that's where I, I feel things, things go wrong. So to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, um, like imagine I told you about a particular um, um, medical um, innovation mm -hmm. that um, across the board, in almost every single sickness that people had, could improve, could enhance the effect 
of the, the benefits of, of whatever medication we're using by usually something between 10 to 20%. And it could work across the board. Well, it would be like, okay, how can I patent this? This is, this is the next sort of multi-billion dollar, you know, we, we've got to do... So we have that, but it's we don't understand. It's called effect. the placebo effect, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and so because um, with uh, the re reductionist viewpoint, it's really it's kind of human nature too. We tend to, um, but particularly in the West, we tend to focus on what we can measure. And if we can't understand something, if we can't make sense of it, we just ignore it. We say, oh, that's just noise. So forget that, mm -hmm. what is this or, or that happening? Now, of course, um, the, what, what I'm getting at is that there are these different, um, comp the, the human body itself and the human organism, bec um, because we're really a mind-body organism, is this incredibly complex, non-linear system of, of different um, moving systems within it, different fractal systems, um, and not just systems within ourselves, but systems in our relationship to the others and all and the rest of the world. And that's not woo-woo. That's not like you don't have to sort of believe in uh, the sort of Chinese medicine herbs in order to come up with that understanding that we are integrated systems within systems. And what Western medicine tends to do is isolate a particular part of that system and say, now let's understand that and do what we can to make that work. And that can work incredibly well. Again, I, this is not to uh, mm -hmm. diminish the effect of that, but there's also so many other things going on. So that when you have a particular um, drug that is looked, seems to be effective, you know, you look at, oh, this drug versus the placebo-controlled trial is 20% is more effective than the other one. But all the other, the other sort of 80% that, uh, th that doesn't actually work is because of the, all the mysteries that we haven't yet understood. And a lot of those don't have to do with p finding one particular microorganism that we didn't discover, one particular molecular, you know, what one protein here or there. But it has to do with the way the whole system connects up. And so, you know, that mm -hmm. gives a sense of what I'm looking at in that regard. Yeah, and it, it kind of reminds me of, like, some of these findings about, you know, what, what makes one musician uh, perform better than another, for example. Right. And, you know, you can say 10,000 hours deliberate practice, and then there are, you know, these studies that come out that show that, you know, the number of out practice hours only a, um, a, can, can explain about 25% of the variance, depending right. on the domain. What is the other 75%? And that's where people, you know, slap on this idea of talent because really we don't know. Um, and so I guess, you know, my answer to that kind of a dilemma would be, well, every practice hour is not created equal. There are too many um, different ways in which a practice hour can be more or less effective given this kind of systems approach to, you know, what is your mindset going in? Are you motivated? Right. Are you tired? Where are you practicing, et cetera? That we can't, you know, make that kind of equivalency. Um, and yet, you know, I, I guess the thing that I struggle with a little bit is, so how does systems theory approach that problem in a way that is better or more effective or whatever um, positive adjective you want to use compared with me just throwing up my hands and saying, let's just call it talent because we don't know. Right. And well, I think one important way in which an intelligent approach to looking at complex systems is different from the reductionist approach is the concept of humility. Because when we approach something, as a, we can approach as a scientist, a complex system, and the first thing we need to recognize is that because of its complexity, we don't actually know exactly how one effect thing, one butterfly's flap here is going to affect the, the weather in Texas or whatever it might be. And we see this, and this is, has really important implications. Say, if we're looking at the issues of climate breakdown right now, 
and, and some scientists with the best intentions saying, you know, even if we do all these ecological, all, all, all these economic changes and we get green energy, et cetera, we're still so out of control, we have to explore geoengineering. And that very notion then takes this reductionist view of life as being a machine and then says, you know, we can, because nature then really is a machine we can engineer, we can try to affect this one aspect of, of climate breakdown and somehow that will make everything, uh, you know, we can measure what's going to happen. And that's the, the kind of the, the hubris that the Western approach to science has brought that I think is fundamentally existentially dangerous versus this recognition, uh, like a systems approach has this kind of place of humility where it says, um, for example, um, there's a practice called permaculture, which applies um, very ancient indigenous and modern systems understanding to looking at agriculture. And the first principle in permaculture is to observe, take your time. And um, don't just come in and say, okay, we've got this field here, flatten it and you know, put fertilizer in. Look, as if, if you have the ability, wait, wait a whole year, watch how things develop, watch in the rainy season, what happens here, watch where this happens and, where, and begin to get a sense, a deeply integrated sense of what's, your, what you're working on in a bigger system. And that's true of looking at a medical approach to our bodies or looking at any, le any level of uh, the whole natural world as a complex system. So, but your book is called The Patterning Instinct and we haven't even gotten there yet. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get to what your supposed solutions are for some of these complex problems that we're facing now, what is the patterning instinct? Well, the patterning instinct is an instinct that is pretty much uniquely human, at least in so far as it's highly developed, to pattern meaning into the world. And that is an instinct that, we know it's an instinct because even uh, a newborn infant uh, actually applies that. So when, when she's born, nobody tells this infant, now you need to listen to all the words that you hear and kind of fi you know, figure out what, what, you know, what we're speaking is our language. Um, but she's driven, right, from the first moments to hear these different sounds and to uh, relate it to what activities happen, what things feel like. And over the months, she begins to realize, oh, there's something going on here. Let me try this or that sound. And if I make that sound, this relates back. So she's patterning meaning into the world around her and she'll develop a knowledge of her culture's language. And then as you grow older, uh, develop a knowledge of your actual culture itself. And so the, what I began to realize was that way back when at the dawn of uh, really modern humans evolving, uh, because of this patterning instinct that was evolving in us to develop, develop things like language and how to um, be successful in complex societies that we had, that instinct applied to the world out there too. And looking at all the sort of otherwise chaotic stuff that was going on, uh, early humans began to look and say, they, we got to pattern some meaning into this. It was just their drive to do that. And that led to the first approaches of mythology, the first ways of making sense of the world that led to essentially the development of culture and everything else that's come since then. So the book really looks at how that instinct to pattern meaning into the world has led to the unfolding of human history. Yeah, I mean, we can see that now we do it automatically and outside of our conscious awareness even when we see, you know, uh, the face of an old man in a cliffside, right. you know, or where exactly. we're just trying to find, you know, uh, the bunny in the clouds. We're, we're, we're looking at, you know, That's right. randomness and abstractness and trying to find meaning in it. And, and I, you know, this is going to get into, into trouble when we're faced with this global ca catastrophic, potentially, climate change problem, um, which, 
you know, as you mentioned earlier, seems really hard to predict because there's all these different, you know, you know, we still don't know the weather patterns that well enough. Mm -hmm. And here we are talking about climate changes, um, which obviously are much more than weather patterns, but that comes into play in terms of how um, climate change will affect, you know, us locally in, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So how do you see either the pattern in patterning instinct being, um, something that can help us come up with and implement solutions to this major problem or prevent us from being able to really, you know, accept that this problem is complex and might not yes. be understandable to any individual. Yeah, a great question. And in a way that it's one question with two, the flip side uh, of one or the other, because if you think about patterns and what it means to pattern, to actually see a pattern in something, we do two things at the same time. We, if you look at like a, a set of dots and you find a pattern in it, you connect up those parts of the otherwise chaotic stuff that look like they're meaningfully connected to you and you begin to ignore the parts that you're not connected. So when humans first looked up at the skies and we came up with constellations in the stars, basically that's about these are the ones that feel meaningful and let's ignore the rest. So once we recognize that, we can see that um, if we look at the modern worldview that feels like it's been so successful, that, uh, that patterning instinct leads us to only look at the things that, again, we can measure and the things that validate what we want to believe already. And so part of what I'm offering in this book is this invitation to actually l try to recognize how those patterns, uh, as I said before, are not necessarily bad, but have led us to these imbalances and to then look at the possibility of other ways of patterning meaning into things that could lead us to a different way of making sense of the very reality we're looking at right now. And so to, to look at how that applies to something like this climate breakdown, it's to, again, once we realize that we're looking at a complex interconnected system rather than separate realities, we begin to realize that we're not just looking at um, climate change as something that's a matter of increased carbon emissions. And it's not just a matter of um, one measurement or another measurement here. It's actually um, a symptom of a ecological relationship between humans and the natural world that has gone massively out of balance and is actually getting out of balance at an even faster rate year by year. And so we have to see that it, it's, we need to shift some of the very systemic ways in which humans relate with each other, with ourselves, and with the natural world, and put that back into balance as part of fixing the, the, the existential threat of climate breakdown, rather than just saying, okay, let's fix this climate thing, and then we'll be okay. Because in a, in a way, I think one thing we can say, because of this recognition of the systemic nature of problems, is that virtually every one of our modern technological um, problems or, uh, that we're looking at right now were once solutions. So the things that we, we thought were fixes decades ago have now led to some of these problems now. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that um, I hear where you're coming from, and I, I think you're right, but the pushback that I want to just give a little bit is that, you know, understanding how our brains work, and, you know, Daniel Kahneman puts it so beautifully in this thinking fast and slow to system model. You know, if you think about the system two, which is our slow, deliberate, thoughtful, rational decision-making part of our brains or, or whatever, circuitry thinking, um, that system is lazy and it will 
look for quick, you know, it'll, it'll take the quick solution if it kind of sounds right. And, and so when faced with the complexity of the problem, I think a lot of us kind of feel paralyzed because you're right, it's complex, it's gonna hit every system and it's gonna be unpredictable and what the outcome is gonna be. So I'm just gonna take my lazy system two and go hide over here and put my head in the sand because there's nothing I can do. So I guess that's kind of what I'm asking for you, from you, like, you know, given the research that you've done, the deep thinking that you've put into this book, um, how do you think that we should invite people to actually make meaningful changes in their lives that can yes. help avert this disaster, you know, with this knowledge that, you know, they just want to find a pattern? Sure. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and really that approach to say, well, you know, there's really nothing I can do is just yet another outcome of this kind of reductionist way of looking at things. So if we think back to that uh, image before of the butterfly's wings potentially causing a tornado in Texas, the there's two sort of key real um, recognitions rising from systems thinking that I think transforms our way of relating personally to what's going on around us. And one is this nonlinear nature of things, that recognizing that one small change here can have indirectly very significant amplified effects that we can never even predict. So there's a certain kind of mystery that we have to accept about that. And, and there's a certain responsibility realizing that we, what we do may not be ultimately meaningless and forgotten like a day later, but might have impacts in terms of being picked up by other people or even just the most unexpected impacts. So that's one key insight that arises. The other one is the recognition that we are all embedded in this same system. That a lot of the uh, ways of thinking that our Western reductionist model um, offers is the sense that somehow there's a separation. The observer is separate from what's being observed. Um, so yeah, I'll look at this, the cell through a microscope. I'm not the cell, I'm separate from that. And, but when we look at the whole Earth system and the future really of our civilization, we, it's really, we're tricking ourselves to think that each of us is separate from it. And we go, oh, all this, you know, nothing I can do and it's nothing to do with me anyway. With the actual, the actions each of us take, the actual ways in which each of us relate to what's going on, um, is part of the, the future that we're creating. So again, that's, that comes with, there's a sense of responsibility there that people may not like, but there's also a sense of freedom and uh, potentially excites, excitement that arises from that, because once we realize that as a network, what each of us does, connected with what other people do, can actually have these nonlinear effects, there begins to arise a sense of hope, not based on some sort of statistical projection that, okay, um, there's a 20 or 40% chance or whatever, the things will turn around, but a recognition that none of us know. So there is some, uh, there's a growing movement of people right now who are looking at uh, climate breakdowns and coming up with this kind of apocalyptic theory saying collapse is inevitable and there's nothing we can do. All we can do is to look after our own or just to come up with ways to adapt or whatever. And that is every bit as wrong, in my view, as the climate deniers who say th this is not happening, which is obviously completely inconsistent with science. But there is nothing inevitable about the way this complex system will unfold. And the approach that each of us takes to it is part of what's going to actually create that future. Well, on that hopeful note, uh, I want to remind our listeners that Jeremy Lent's book, The Patterning Instinct, 
A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning is now available at booksellers everywhere. Jeremy, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Andrew. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Aylwold, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. We'll be off next week because I have a new book coming out that's launching on April 2nd. It's published by Chronicle Books here in San Francisco, and it's called How Music Can Make You Better. It's available now on Amazon, and I'd love it if some of you would read it and let me know what you think. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.